0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. While artist Chris Terry is known for his contemplative interior landscapes, a new exhibition at the USU Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art features the experimental work he was able to create during four sabbaticals during his tenure at USU. The exhibition is called Chris Terry on Sabbatical, and you can view it at artmuseum.usu.edu. The exhibit traces these periods when he was stretching, creating, and testing pent-up ideas that he was finally able to exercise. This hour, we're going to talk with Chris Terry and Bolton Colburn, who is curator of collections and exhibitions at the Art Museum, about this exhibition. We'll talk about Essen, Germany, where Chris Terry spent several of his sabbaticals. Art in a Pandemic, viewing reproductions of works of art versus experiencing the originals. And we'll even talk about German duct tape. Chris Terry, before we get into the exhibit and your work, um, I want to talk a little bit uh, about your bio. So yeah, it was, you grew up in Connecticut, was it?
1: That's right, yeah. Um, yeah. Just outside of New York City, in fact. My father worked in the city in, uh Wilton, Connecticut, where I grew up as a bedroom community for New York.
0: So when did you know, I want to be an artist?
1: Oh, boy. Uh <laughs> Oh, I think it came pretty early, um, certainly by the time that I was in college. I was pretty much on fire and and really focused on that. I don't know that I didn't consider other options. Even after I had my terminal degree, I was considering some different things, but um, I definitely was interested in the visual arts from pretty early on. 18,
0: 17, maybe. So you said you were, you were still considering other options up until your terminal degree.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I finished my degree at the uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1981. And, uh, with of course, with that terminal degree, I just immediately landed a job as a bartender. <laughs> and um, I was a bartender for four years. Um, it was a very good job, gave me lots of time to work on my paintings, and I managed to organize a whole series of shows during that period, so it wasn't a bad thing. But um, I met a lot of people, and they came from all different walks of life, and sometimes they'd offer you a job, and I considered taking one or two of them, but never did.
0: So, you know, that's the stereotype. You know, you consider other things because... (laughs) maybe a little bit of doubt that art's going to pay. Do you, what do you tell your students?
1: Oh, I tell my students a lot of different things, but one of the things that I say is that it's not a career to follow if you are not really committed. Um, I I feel as though if you're going to take a, a degree at university, Utah State University or any other uh, in the arts, whether it be theater, music, dance, um, or the visual arts, that you've really got to go into it 100%. You can't just kind of do it a little bit on the side while you're focusing on other stuff. So it's definitely not a career that is likely to result in lots of big, um, big payoffs financially in the long run, although sometimes it does but um it can be an extremely rewarding career and it's surprising how many of our students are making a living in the, the area in which they studied no. you now there a lot of people think that all the artists go into food services and even though i did do 4 years as a bartender we have surveyed our students, and it's a really small percentage that winds up doing food services, probably not a whole lot more than a lot of other degree programs on mm.
0: campus. Yeah, that's good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah. Um, you say in one of the introductions to uh, one of these uh, exhibits, we'll get into the specific works, uh, when your high school Common Destination Field Trips was an art museum, and since you were near New York City, these were these were pretty good museums.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. We um, I I went to... I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I remember when I was in, I think it must have been junior high. And you know, we'd all just pile on a bus and it was a oh, an hour and 15 minutes into Midtown and um uh, then I can remember trips where we went to uh the Museum of Modern Art as well. Maybe the Whitney or no, the Guggenheim. We we visited the Guggenheim one year. Uh these were various kinds of student trips i'm not sure exactly how they got organized but they were really interesting and i definitely think they helped to shape me
0: mm. are, are there any works especially stand out from that time that really impressed you
1: oh yeah i was i can remember being really struck by this painting by gauguin at uh the metropolitan oh, i must have been oh 15 years old and um uh, that one certainly stands out in my mind. I uh, went to an exhibition of uh, Wilhelm de Kooning at uh, the uh, at the Guggenheim Museum way uptown. This is the this is the museum building that Frank Lloyd Wright designed, so it's in a circle. And I remember being pretty confused by that exhibition. Uh, that kept me uh, busy and thinking for the next couple of months. Um, so yeah, there were there were a number of very notable experiences that I had back then.
0: Mm. Well, let's fast forward, and I want to turn back to Bolton Colburn. Um, and have you uh, described Chris Terry's work in you know in general terms? We'll maybe have you talk about some, some specific works uh, if you like later on. But uh, in general, how would you describe Chris Terry's work?
2: Well, I think you know the most striking work that that he does are his interior scenes, and their meditations on various um, different points. Um, and I think you know, symbolically they re- co- kind of relate to what's going on right now with the pandemic, which is isolation and separation. Um, and those works are, are, are pretty extraordinary. Um, he also, um, I found out through knowing him and curating this exhibition, um, does some pretty interesting still lifes as well as landscapes. So that that pretty much covers the gamut, as far as I know. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah. uh, Chris Terry, how would you describe your work?
1: Oh, boy. Um, well, of course, one of the great things about being an artist is that if you're lucky, you don't have to describe it. You can just show it to people. Mm. And uh, that's the best description, but I definitely think that Bolton mentioned this, this word, meditative, and uh, that's a thing that really interests me. Um, I like the idea that um, my paintings are relatively calming and that um, people might spend a fair amount of time looking at them, maybe even a lifetime if they happen to own one and have it on the wall, um, I'm really interested in the effects of really specific kinds of light, Um, so that's a thing that that I'm constantly looking at. It's not so much the subject matter, I won't say that that's unimportant, but the subject is, for me, not as important as the environment and the light that is illuminating that subject matter.
0: I'm uh, quoting now from uh, 15 Bytes. This is a a review from January 2010, one of these uh, exhibits. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's see. I need to – I scrolled up and and back down, so I need to find this again. Um, So this this reviewer said, uh, Light is the force that animates and fills every surface in Terry's paintings giving life to the polished floors, weathered baseboards, as much as the folds of cloth and mundane objects that make up is still lifes, Terry takes everyday objects and places them on a quote-unquote stage, generally a table, fully covered with long white tablecloth in large empty rooms with abundance of molding. Um, so, as, as you say, the subject matter isn't as important, though not totally unimportant, but... Um, so, lights, uh, very important here as well, but uh, what? Uh, tell me more about what's going on.
1: Well, I definitely feel as though uh, that little section that you read from that interview, or not interview, it was a review, um, is fairly insightful and really kind of nails down a lot of the stuff that I'm really interested in. Um. <sighs> And the the thing that I that interests me is the way that things get changed by a particular kind of light. And the thing that I I I guess I have to tell a little bit of an anecdote when my son was really young. I can remember him coming into the studio and he often encouraged me to do paintings that would appeal to him. And I think what he was looking for was maybe a car crash or a huge fire maybe a plane flying into a building. I mean, what he was looking for was subject matter that was exciting. And I realized in my conversations with him, as I tried to explain to him why I wasn't making those paintings, I realized that what really intrigued me was taking things that looked as though they were not the tiniest little bit interesting and trying to present them in a way that I could make them really intriguing and engage people and hold their attention for oh uh, an extended period of time and a very extended period of time. So that was that's always been kind of the challenge for me.
0: Mm. What, and the
1: way that I do that is by trying to come up with light that will show us something about this really simple subject matter that um, makes it intriguing.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I have to follow up. So you are I'm guessing your son at that age was probably disappointed with the... Uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. <laughs>
0: has, he, has he come around? Has he gotten older? Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but,
1: you know, I, I used to give him a piece of paper, maybe a little canvas and some paints, and every once in a while he'd work out there with me, and he got to make the paintings he liked.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Uh so I want to get a response from both of you. I'll I'll turn back to Bolton Colburn first and then then to Chris Terry. So Bolton Colburn you you mentioned um the, the uh, some themes in uh, Chris Terry's work that that maybe fit, you know, the themes we are all going through right now. You mentioned isolation.
2: Yes, yes, no, isolation and um and separation and, and you know, it's clear when you look at one of Chris's paintings that, you know, know, that's what you're being subjected to. uh, These, you know, very refined um, meditations that, you know, help you in some ways focus on a particular object, you know, because it's engaging your eye and makes you stop and and contemplate things and you know i'm just thinking about what's going on right now and and how it, it it's so similar to to the the context that we're in with the pandemic where you know we're sitting around home we're pretty much in the same environment for 24 hours for days and days and days and weeks on end and months on end and um are sort of experiencing that internally as well
0: mm-hmm. uh, so follow up to that what do you uh... What do you think the role of art is? What do you think? The, what do you think art can do um, for us? Well,
2: I think I think art, you know, it can do a lot of things. It can be, as I was mentioning in terms of Chris's work, um, it can it could be transformative. Um, it's you know it's something you you have a dialogue with, um, and you know you're you bring your context and your set of uh, ideas and associations along with you and and Sometimes art, get you know, talks back to you <laughs> and engages you in a way that, that is unexpected and, and sometimes challenging and sometimes difficult. And those ex- experiences um, are in- incredibly meaningful and sometimes uh, very powerful.
0: Mm. Uh, Chris Terry, s- similar questions. You mentioned the word calming before. Mm-hmm. You feel like at least some of your art is, is calming. Boy, we sure need that in today's environment. Uh, what, what, same question to you. What, 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 what can art do, do you think, for us?
1: Oh, boy. You know, this is a—I I think I, I really come at this from a very different point of view. And uh, just recently I was uh, talking with a student who was asking me about why should we be looking at art in general, and why should we be looking at art right now? And, of course, what I was thinking is that it's not so much that we should be looking at art, but, in fact, we just do. I mean, it's it's such a pervasive human activity and has been for, oh, as long as human beings have been sitting around a campfire. Um, and so... I think that we are an extremely social species, we, we want to interact with one another, and more than anything else, the visual arts, and I suppose the other arts as well, are a form of communication. They're, they're a way of sharing uh, the experiences that we have as human beings, and the experiences that I'm sharing may or may not be really important or helpful or useful to everyone, but I think that it's likely that, some, that they really speak to some people and that any kind of communication with our fellow human beings is uh, helpful in times of trouble, I think.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the artist, Chris Terry, and with Bolton Colburn, who is Curator of Collections and Exhibitions at Norrick Ells Harrison Museum of Art on the USU campus. Uh, we'll continue this conversation following break. Uh, coming up in the next segment, we'll talk about viewing reproductions of works of art versus experiencing the originals. More following this.
2: Did you know that students perform better when their education is connected to their culture? Researchers have found that materials learned more easily and retained longer when it relates to aspects of a student's cultural heritage. In Southern Utah, these findings are being implemented with Native American youth to help students learn engineering, math, and science principles. The projects that have been developed combine hands-on learning experiences with intergenerational learning, giving students an opportunity to work with their parents and grandparents.
0: This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. Committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about art uh, today and specifically a new exhibition at the Nora Eccles-Harrison Museum of Art on the USU campus. It's called Chris Terry on Sabbatical, and uh, you can view that at artmuseum.usu.edu. We're talking with the artist, Chris Terry, and with Bolton Colburn, who's curator of collections and exhibitions at the Art Museum. I'd like to talk about the, the exhibit. So, Bolton Colburn again. Uh, the, the exhibit's called Chris Terry on Sabbatical. You, you've chosen to... Uh, I guess focus mainly on works that Chris Terry did on sabbatical
2: yeah um yeah, we you know Chris and I were working together a little bit because we wanted to do an exhibition that that would um honor his um, thirty years uh, being here on staff as a professor um at the university and um started going through his things, and you know we started to I started to see these works from different sabbaticals and he had had four sabbaticals um, during his career here and sabbaticals I, I found the work kind of interesting because I could see how chris the, the work was a little rougher and he was uh, engaged in working out some ideas and challenges um, that maybe he wouldn't have necessarily had time to, um, while while he was teaching, um, which of course is uh, why uh, universities encourage their professors to go on sabbatical. Um, so I found that work really engaging. It was sort of uh, less worked out, so to speak, um, less refined uh, than um, many of his um, full-fledged still life um, and interior paintings, um, but uh, I think engaging in terms of the fact that you could clearly see that he's trying to do um, certain certain things um, that he uh, wouldn't necessarily ever otherwise have the chance to do. Uh, so,
0: um, yes, yeah. go ahead.
2: So um, so we ended up on the theme of, the, of doing four sabbaticals, and sort of broken down into the it, it that's the way the exhibition's broken down to those four segments and um it it's <clears throat> it's pretty interesting because these you know Chris you spent a lot of time in uh in Germany on some of those sabbaticals, which is you know was surprising to me i didn't know that you had spent so much time in that country so well going to, on those sabbaticals evolved as well as on the east coast um, which is where you're going to live so um, after you leave here on campus. So I, I thought it was a great conclusion to your 30 years here um, to try to look at these. I mean, they're almost windows uh, of time in which you were, could explore your work as an artist.
0: Uh, yes. Uh, so, Chris Terry, you, uh, you're, you're heading back east, are you?
1: Yeah, I think that when we are finished here at Utah State, we've got a lot of Business to wrap up, we've been living here a long time, but ultimately we're going to move back to Rhode Island, and I've actually got a studio there that is just kind of waiting for me, so mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to getting back to that.
0: I'm, I'm curious um, to talk about, I don't know, culture, culture clash, culture differences. Grew up in the East, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Spent some time in Wisconsin, uh, out to California, and then some 30 years uh, here in uh, Utah.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean, it, it, I certainly never anticipated coming to Utah at all. I can remember being a kid growing up. We used to put those little puzzles together that were maps of the United States. And there was a shape that was called Utah that had, uh, I don't know, maybe a saguaro cactus and a <laughs> uh, cattle skull in the sand. And it just didn't look like a destination to me. But one thing leads to another, and uh, I wound up coming here in 1988. And well, turned out it wasn't such a very bad place to work and to live. And uh, it's treated us really well over the years that we've been here. Yeah. But nevertheless, I'm not a mountain guy. I'm an ocean guy. Mm-hmm. So I got to get back to the ocean.
0: Yeah. And you'll keep. I understand you ride your bike to work a lot, or did?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm actually walking a lot now. I don't oh. know whether you've noticed this or not, but Logan is, is getting to be tough to ride a bike in. Mm-hmm. It's really getting pretty crowded. But, uh, yeah, either riding my bike or walking to school for the pretty much the whole time I've lived here.
0: Yeah. A little later in the conversation, I want to talk about Germany. Uh, you, you write in <laughs> one of these introductions, people ask you, why Germany? And, and the implication is, you know, why not someplace warm and, you know, and 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 "quote unquote" better, but I'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What I want to do is I want to read this paragraph and talk about uh, sabbatical. People not used to the university system may not even know what a sabbatical is. So here's, uh, I think, quoting you: "The demands of the muse are chronic. The demands of the university, on the other hand, tend to be acute, as any physician can tell you. In a head-to-head battle between the two, acute wins hands down. But the dream of the research university is that each faculty member will engage in scholarly activity as defined by their disciplines." And our distinction in their respective fields, while well, at the same time, they're also expected to transmit knowledge, extend their students' understanding and vision, and develop in their students the ability for critical independent thinking. Oh, and can you also serve on the faculty dust bunny committee? That's the academic life. So, uh, That's t- the t-
1: academic life.
0: <laughs> for those who don't know, tell us what a sabbatical is.
1: Well, um, sabbatical, um, first of all, the, the, the root of the word calls of course, comes from the word Sabbath. And the idea is that after, on the seventh day, uh, we take a day of rest. And so the academics thought, well, on the seventh year, maybe we would take a day of rest. And depending on the um, regulations of the university that you're working at, you um, faculty members have an, appla- an opportunity to apply for a leave and depending on whether they go for uh, 6 months or for a year they can get some portion of their salary to live on and the expectation is that they'll go out and further their own knowledge and come back with experiences that will ultimately benefit the students at their university
0: mm. Let's, let's take these uh, four sabbaticals in, in sequence and talk about maybe a, a work or two. So your first sabbatical, where did you go?
1: Well, um, I got a Fulbright grant to go to Germany, and it was uh, to both teach and do research in Germany, research meaning creative activity, not scholarly research, And so I went to a city in Germany called Essen. It is a fairly large city, but not particularly well-known in the United States. It's not really a tourist destination. Um, And I was uh, basically stationed at uh, the University of Essen. And uh, I went there with absolutely zero plans. I didn't take any art materials with me and just wanted to kind of break away from Oh, I think you could call it a rut that I had gotten in, where I was making a certain kind of painting, and there was a, a demand for those paintings. I was trying to keep a couple of different galleries happy and send them new work. And so when I was on sabbatical, I really had no obligations or expectations, and I just wanted to see what would happen when I got there.
0: This might be a good time to bring in that question that you get. Why Germany?
1: Well, um, I actually ran into uh, a guy, a a man, I might add, who was interviewed on UPR many years ago, uh, Rudolf Knübel, and he was a professor at the University of Essen, and he met me in California when he was a Fulbright scholar there. And we got to know each other fairly well, and um, he suggested that at some point I might be able to travel and um, be a guest faculty member at his university. So I really had his support and encouragement, and once I was ready to do that, um, I uh, was able to follow through on it. Mm. So that's really the the, the reason. I mean, I, I don't have any particular German heritage. I didn't speak the language, and um, never had had any particular interest in German culture any more than any other culture. I mean, I was aware of... Places like the Bauhaus School was really a pretty significant um, element for visual artists, but there are places like that in lots of countries, so that was not necessarily a big factor in the decision.
0: You're right that Essen doesn't have the reputation as the garden spot of Europe, but I think you yep. found it a good place to, to work. What well, uh, Tell me a little bit about Essen.
1: Oh, it's... You know, the fact that it was not a tourist city was really turned out in a strange way to be very beneficial because if you're stationed in a city like Düsseldorf or uh, Berlin, then the place is lousy with Americans. And so you wind up being a part of some American expat community. And I really feel as though the fact that we were in a city that had almost zero American residents... Really enabled us to experience the culture and get to know people in ways that we probably wouldn't have done if we had been in a different place. Mm. Um, there really is a. I, I don't know what your familiarity is with Essen, but it's really like Pittsburgh in the United States. Mm. Uh, it was built on coal and steel, and then at a certain period of time, that the economy of the world changed. And so all of that went away, and the city had to reinvent itself. And I was lucky enough to arrive at a point where it was really on an upturn, and it was rebuilding itself as a kind of information technology city. And a lot of what people know about it as a an industrial city is, in fact, not at all true now. Mm. There's not a lot of industry there anymore. It's really a very beautiful location with lots of parks and nature and landscape, and we really enjoyed it there.
0: Uh, let me turn back to Bolton Colburn. Uh, so uh, this, this first this sabbatical, is there a work or any of the works you want to talk about from, from the exhibit that uh, are represented by this first grade?
2: Well, I mean, the, the, the two things that, we chose for the exhibition. I think um, Juni and Junar are both pretty wonderful um, still lifes. That that their sketches and their plays with on perspective and they're really engaging visually. Um, all sorts of things sort of happen and things move around and and some views seem impossible and um, they're really quite intriguing. And those are the, some of the first things I saw in Chris's. Studio when we began to when we began our studio visits, um, and I was really attracted to that work it's It's really bold as well, um, which is nice to see in a in a sketch like that
0: mm. uh, chris Terry so this this first sabbatical ninety four ninety five right mm-hmm. uh, so how would you characterize your work during this period?
1: Well, as I say, I went with absolutely no expectations other than to work spontaneously, and really take advantage of the fact that I would not have a a full teaching schedule. I did do a little bit of teaching, but it was very minimal compared to my responsibilities here. So I had lots of time to work in the studio. And the university gave me a room to work in, and it was a room where people had been abandoning things for many years. It was uh not really a classroom i think it might have been a faculty office at one point but it was had not really been used very much and so there was all this leftover stuff in there and it was all pretty intriguing to me it was just slightly different than the kinds of things that you might see in the united states and that became my subject matter the stuff that i literally just found in the room that they gave me and it took a good three months before I figured out what to do with it and I wasn't just sitting around at that point. I made hundreds of drawings but they weren't particularly successful and then finally somewhere around the beginning of, Ma- of November as I remember, things really started to click and I started to find some ways of looking at this and some materials I could work with. I was working primarily in opaque watercolor and that allowed me to begin and complete a painting inside of, well, as short a time as 90 minutes, but more often these things were started and finished, say, within a eight-hour period. Mm. So they were really quite spontaneous, and I made lots and lots of them, and they weren't all great or successful, but if you make a lot of stuff, then some of it turns out well, I guess.
0: Hmm. Do, do you, uh, what's the difference between, quote-unquote, your regular process when you're back home?
1: Oh, well, there I give a great deal of thought, and there's a great deal of planning that goes into those paintings. Um, I typically will begin one and expect it to be developed over the course not of eight hours, but eight weeks minimum. Uh, so it's a very, very different rhythm. And it's not a bad thing. I I enjoy making those paintings. I love making them. But it was really exciting to be able to shift gears and do something different and make... uh, I think another thing, of course, is that here in the United States, the paintings that I make are really colorful. I mean, I use a very wide range of colors and a pretty broad palette. And when I started in Germany, the thing that really got me started is that I found out that you could buy a black in Germany that had a warm tonality to it. And all the blacks that I had used in the United States were cool. They had a bluish cast to them. And this black that I found in Germany had a reddish cast. Hmm. And so I wound up making these paintings at the beginning. They were all about the differences between warm and cool grays.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Get a slightly different tone of the color. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so not colorful at all, really monochromatic, and then over time, over the course of a full year there, making literally hundreds of these things, I started to add some colors in. I think the first one was yellow ochre, and then I added Indian red, and then a little bit of blue started to show up sometime around February. Uh, but they never became really brightly colored the way the paintings are that I make in the U.S.
0: Mm. I want to move to the second sabbatical, this is 2000-2001, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Back in Germany? Yeah, um,
1: yeah, I went I went back and again had the support of, of Fulbright um, and was at the very same university again. Uh,
0: so this, this struck me from your introduction to the second sabbatical. Um, you said growing up didn't lack exposure to original works of art. We mentioned that uh, you went to high school in Connecticut and had access to the great museums in New York. You say, nevertheless, all too often I fall victim to the proliferation re- reproduction in, of our culture. When someone mentions Las Meninas, I often find myself thinking of a small, dark, black-and-white image on the lower left side page of my edition of Jansen, rather than the glorious life-size masterpiece by Velasquez. I hadn't thought about that, but I think a lot of us are fall victim to the proliferation reproduction of our, of our culture.
1: Yeah, I, I, I can remember hearing... Um a story i don't know whether it was true or not but it's it's a it's good either way about a a woman who was talking about picasso's uh, guernica that was in the museum of modern art for many many years and then ultimately went back to spain but it's a black and white painting and um, this particular anecdote involves someone talking about the way the, the the variety of colors that were in it and so our memories really aren't very accurate. We've, we remember things the way we think they might have been. And when you're on sabbatical and you're traveling in Europe, it gives you the opportunity to revisit lots and lots of really great works of art. And on that particular visit, I did uh, um, go to Vienna and, and saw the Las Meninas there. Um, or no, maybe, I'm sorry, I'm... I've got it mixed up with some other Velázquez paintings, but they have a really fabulous collection of Velázquez there. Um, and, of course, lots and lots of other museums. That's a thing that I was able to do a lot when I was on sabbatical.
0: And some art, uh, you know, can survive, quote-unquote, uh, reproduction. You mentioned, I, I, I'm not familiar with this artist, uh, Giorgio Morandi? Yeah, yeah. Uh, who you say is an artist who easily puts some of your class to sleep when you show his work in production? <laughs> but but when you true. see the original, you can you can see as as you say the subtle shifts in warm and cool ton- tonalities that made him one of the modernism's best uh, known still life painters. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, because for some art, you you really have to see the original. Yeah,
1: I think so. Um... I mean, I, I saw that on that sabbatical, I was in Paris and saw a huge exhibition of Mirandi's work. Um, there must have been 40 or 50 examples of his work. And they're small paintings. They are really idiosyncratic. And, and this guy just painted the same stuff for almost an entire lifetime. They're very simple still-life objects. So... In a way, I've done a little bit of that myself. I kind of identify with him. Um, and when you see these things in real life, you appreciate very subtle stuff that does not reproduce well at all. Mm.
0: Uh, Bolton Colburn, I wonder what your thoughts are on this this idea of reproduction versus original. And this is in,
2: yeah, in, at right.
0: N- Nora Eccles-Harrison yeah. Museum of Art, but, but uh, uh, tell me your thoughts about this. Well,
2: I don't know. You know, it's an interesting thing, especially when you think about the future of museums and visual culture, um, and you know what's you know what's going to happen in you know ten, twenty years digitally and on you know what's going to you know people are going to primarily know objects not even through a textbook, which is something actually solid that you can <laughs> manipulate, but you know it's even going to be more ethereal than that. It's going to be online on a you know on your screen and. Probably on your phone, um, and you know that we're getting further and further away from that sort of firsthand um, firsthand experience of the of the work itself. However, it uh, the the good side of that whole thing is it's hitting a, a, a larger and larger audience. People are, are more are more um, fluent visually now with, with art history than they've ever been before. At least I'd like to make that argument that they are. Um, and it's through devices uh, like we're using that, that are making that possible. So, you know, the, the question for museums is, you know, what is, what is going to be our role in the future uh, when everybody can access this stuff? And I always think, you know, people are always going to want to see um, the object firsthand if they get intrigued by it, um, visually by seeing a reproduction, even a digital reproduction on on their telephone, they might get intrigued enough to actually go see the the object itself. So, um, anyway, I'm I'm optimistic about about uh, about our um, visual reproduction. Actually, re- reaching a wider audience and making them more literate visually. So.
0: Yeah, uh, and you think that's happening? People are becoming more literate.
2: I definitely think so. I mm-hmm. mean, I. I'm, there's probably people that'll argue the opposite, but you know I can't think that you couldn't be more exposed to visual images now than you were 20 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, before we leave this uh, the second sabbatical, anything you'd like to say about the, those those particular works?
2: Well, um, no, that. But, but I love the shift between the first and the second sabbaticals because um, the second sabbatical, um, as Chris mentioned, he, he starts uh, using color in the work and mixing that in with these uh, warm and cool, uh, darker tones, and that it's that's pretty intriguing. So.
0: You're listening to Axis Utah. We're talking with artist Chris Terry and with Bolton Colburn who is Curator of Collections and Exhibitions at Nora Eccles-Harrison Museum of Art. Uh, After the break, we'll have our last segment, and we're going to talk about German duct tape. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And the Herald-Journal, your in-depth source of local Cache Valley news, delivering local, state, and national news directly to your home, offering online and U.S. mail newspaper delivery. Information at hjnews.com or at 752 Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. You're listening to Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Chris Terry, uh, who's an artist. Uh, his uh, uh, An exhibition of his work is uh, on display now at the Nora Eccles-Harrison Museum of Art on the USU campus. It's called Chris Terry on Sabbatical. And you can view that at artmuseum.usu.edu. We're also talking with Bolton Colburn, who's curator of collections and exhibitions at the Art Museum. Chris Terry, I can't leave uh, the second sabbatical without mentioning, as you do, in your introduction, German duct tape. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> duct tape is one of our modern miracles. Uh, you, by the way, I should put this in context. You, you were quite productive in the second sabbatical, and you wondered, well, what do I do with all this, this work? And so you were, you were trying to hatch a plan to get all the stuff home. Uh, quote, uh, working, working a miracle with some second-hand suitcases and a roll of uh, German duct tape.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that is. Uh I probably exaggerated a little bit for a fact, but in fact, um, it really was difficult to uh, move a lot of that stuff. I did leave a lot of work there in Germany, um, and so it didn't all wind up coming back. But I was pretty inventive, and I, as I remember I went out and bought a, um, a bag that people use for, for carrying golf clubs around. and that allowed me to put some of the larger pieces. I I did do some larger paintings in that second year, and so I rolled them up and tucked them right into this bag, and it was easy to carry around four or five paintings that way, and And then then restretch them when you get back to the United States.
0: Yeah, yeah, get creative. Uh, By the way, is German duct tape same as the stuff you buy here? Yes,
1: it is, and of I, have, in that particular um, statement, I did translate duct tape into German, but in <laughs> fact, Germans just call it duct tape.
0: No, they do. They do. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right. they
1: do. okay, They do. They adopt um, English words at a frightening rate. Um, if you want to learn German, do it quickly because it's disappearing.
0: hmm. Interesting, so and Germans aren't. You know, the French I think have been worried about this. The Germans not as much. No,
1: no, they they embrace um, English words at an amazing rate. I mean, because of the nature of of my experiences there, I've done. I've gone back for many, many visits, um, 15, 16, 17, 18 different visits, usually separated by a year or two. And every time I go back, I'm astounded to find out how many more German words I don't need. Yeah, that they've oh, really? adopted all kinds of Americanisms, and they really love them, and they're enthusiastic about peppering their speech with Lots and lots of American words.
0: Hmm. Oh, very interesting! Very interesting. Uh, so, the third sabbatical, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, back to Essen. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- tell me about uh, tell me about that one. What what were you working on there? Well, I decided that
1: I really wanted to do a sabbatical where I wasn't um, didn't have any responsibilities. So I wasn't teaching at all. So, um, I really liked the idea of living in a city. Uh, for a period of time, as much as I enjoy Logan, I think it's nice to live in a more built up metropolitan area from time to time. And I knew that Essen was a city that was extremely livable. Um, and I also knew that I could find a studio space there really inexpensively. I had friends and connections and acquaintances that helped me find a really fabulous studio space. So we went back a third time. And I didn't have any connection that year with the, with the university. I just had a private studio that I worked in uh, on a regular basis. And, well, that was a really very productive year. I did a lot of different things that year, including some paintings that are more standard. And I think that's what we chose for this particular exhibition, is paintings that are much closer to the work that I do. Um, well... The, the work that I'm known for, I guess, mm-hmm. as an artist, these interior spaces and still life-oriented paintings.
0: Uh, bolton Colburn uh, I imagine you'd agree with that. Uh, this third sabbatical works there a little closer to the the ones you'd usually find in Chris Terry's collection?
2: Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, and they're quite accomplished paintings. Um, fluorescent Nimbus is one of my favorite paintings in the show it's pretty mm. extraordinary and, and the subtlety and depth of color and changes in the painting are pretty amazing
0: so. mm. yeah uh wonderful uh so chris terry the, the fourth sabbatical by the way before we get to the fourth sabbatical do you take your family with you on these are you out there oh, alone Absolutely. yeah yeah yeah,
1: yeah. and a, that was that you know that's pretty stressful uh, my my daughter did second grade in Germany, and then later she was back for ninth grade. My son was in oh, I guess was it sixth or seventh grade in Germany, and then when we went back for the second time, he was college age, so he didn't join us. But yeah.
0: Mm. Uh, so uh, what do they think? Did they enjoy those? The oh, I hate to
1: say it was a mis- mixed. Bag. I mean, you know, it's it, it's the best of times and the worst of times. Um, it can be extremely frustrating to live in a foreign country where the simplest things can be an absolute mystery to you. Um, I remember that when we first arrived in that very first sabbatical, and none of us spoke a word of German, and we were desperate to find a place to wash our clothing, and we couldn't find anyone who even understood the concept of a laundromat. <laughs> and it took us two weeks to finally get to a point where we just realized we had to go buy a washing machine and it was an expense that we didn't plan on and so yeah lots lots of lots of stress, but it makes life very interesting to live under those circumstances.
0: Yeah. And I, yeah.
1: so I, I think in general we look back on those times pretty fondly.
0: Mm-hmm uh stomach fourth sabbatical that's just a couple of years ago right
1: yeah it's fairly recent uh, uh 16 17
0: yeah uh were you back in essen
1: no um we decided that we would move back to rhode island um which is where we expect to live when i retire and partly we were wondering if we would enjoy that and so in a sense it was like a trial run to see if we wanted to live there when we retired and what happened when we moved back to rhode island we we were living in a community called jamestown um and i really was intrigued by the landscape and so that was an opportunity to do a whole series of landscape paintings
0: interesting and that, is that that is that new for you Oh, it's
1: not that I had never, ever painted landscape before, um, but never i had never done anything like the paintings that I did when I got back there. They're, you know, they're, they were a real challenge to try to figure out how to deal with the depth of space. I mean, the, the, the paintings that I do typically have a very, very shallow and limited space. There's always a wall at the back of the space, typically the wall is parallel with the picture plane. And so everything is limited by that wall. You can go back into space two, three, four, five feet, and then it stops. And, of course, that's not what happens in the landscape. It goes on forever. And that was a really difficult problem to sort out. It took me months to before I was able to successfully complete a painting that kind of approached what I was hoping to do.
0: Mm. Oh, we're reaching the end of our time here. I want to turn back to Bolton Colburn. Um, maybe have you characterize this this exhibit uh, and uh, the attractions of this exhibit. Why why should people uh, view it?
2: Well, I think I think it's um, you know we keep on mentioning this, but I, I think when you go to a Chris Terry exhibition and and see several of his works at once, it 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 slows you down um, and it's either gonna slow you down or you're gonna you're gonna hit hit the wall and it bounce right off, but uh one of the two and um, it's an excellent time to really sink into something visually and and start i mean it begs a lot of this work begs certain questions and uh try to figure out what what um Chris is up to and what he's doing from sabbatical to sabbatical, and how things are evolving, and so it's a chance. It's a chance at looking at the dialogue of a of a mature artist who's, you know, seriously, you know, been doing some serious work for 30 years uh, with an academic background, and um, we you know we, we talk about a couple of these paintings like I mentioned the fluorescent nimbus. Well, you know, he's he's at the top of his skill. Skills with that painting, and it's 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 really engaging. And I think the earlier works from these um, prior sabbaticals sort of give you some hints in terms of how Chris is beginning to think about the work and what sort of problems he's thinking about and dealing with. Um, and I think it's an opportunity to see, you know, to see pretty much um, how he's worked things out over a 30-year period, and uh, he's definitely uh, a master. Um, I just did some work, I was talking to Chris about this, I just did some work on the artist Milton Avery, who's from that period, and um, not from that period, he precedes Chris by quite a bit, but um, I could kind of see how um, Chris, Chris's work and his trajectory isn't all that unlike uh, Milton Avery's in terms of using his subject matter um, as a formal means of, of almost abstraction, of um, kind of getting at some issues that tr- you know transcend uh, the subject matter itself. So, mm.
0: great yeah. work. And, yeah.
2: You know, show not to miss...
0: Interesting. especially
2: since he's leaving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the yeah. community. Yeah.
0: That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, uh Chris okay. Terry, let me turn to you and uh, give you the last word. So, uh you're moving back to Rhode Island, uh having completed an academic career here is is this in some ways, kind of like a now an extended sabbatical is 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 that the case? You won't have the academic pressures now.
1: Well, I'm certainly not expecting to retire in any normal sense of the word because I imagine that the first day back I'll probably be up around six o'clock and on my way to the studio. That's what I really enjoy doing. And uh, if there's one complaint I have about the academic life, and it it really is a fabulous career, so I don't want to run it down, but um, it didn't give me the time to really focus on painting in the way that I thought I was going to when I started out. And so I'm really looking forward to the fact that I'll be able to devote myself to being a painter full-time. Um, and uh, so, I don't know, I guess that's maybe sort of like what I did when I was on sabbatical. I know I'll have plenty of opportunities for travel. So, um, yeah, there's probably going to be some real similarities between the life that I led when I was on sabbatical from Utah State and the life that I will lead as a retiree.
0: Well, and in the meantime, people can uh, take a look at the the work. Uh, the exhibit is called Chris Terry on Sabbatical, um, and that's at Nor Eccles, Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. You can take a virtual tour, or you can uh, take a look at the, the slides on, on that website. Uh, we've been talking with Bolton Colburn, a curator there at, uh, at NEMA. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And Chris Terry, um, USU professor of art and uh the artist for this exhibit. Uh, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Tom, for for uh, doing this interview and letting us talk a little bit about the work.
0: Should mention at the end here. You can uh, the the website is artmuseum.usu.edu. You can view that exhibit. And our thanks to uh, Chris Terry and Bolton Colburn. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSUFM Logan.